As the introduction to today's lesson, I want to comment on an observation about the transition from chapter 19 that we covered last time to today's chapter, chapter 20 in 1 Kings. You know, as you recall, Elijah has seen the Lord do some amazing things, hasn't he? Um, in chapter 17, he announced and brought that drought uh, to, to Ahab in the northern kingdom. He encountered, you remember, the widow and her son and performed some amazing miracles for them. In chapter 18, he challenged Ahab and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You recall what happened there, how Elijah called down uh, a great miracle from God. And he also saw the prophets of Baal killed. But in chapter 19, things change. He receives a death threat from who? From Jezebel. He runs and he hides because he's afraid. And he is depressed. In fact, he asks the Lord to just take his life. Just, I'm ready to leave. He's saying that there's no one left but him as a prophet of God. God, however, speaks and encourages him and gives him various other assignments. As we pick up in chapter 20, you would think that the next story, it would be about what happens next to who? Elijah. But that's not the case. Instead, as we will see, there are other nameless prophets that are mentioned and who are involved in the story. You know, we've all had times of thinking the world revolves around us, haven't we? At least to some degree. Perhaps as a child, perhaps as a, a teenager, or even, yes, as an adult. We might not say or admit that now, but our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions could indicate otherwise. Like Elijah, we can get down, we can get depressed when things don't go according to our plans. And we just think about ourselves, even in the context of serving the Lord and areas of ministry. It's just a reminder to me that God is the main character of history. He's the main character of the present. <clears throat> he is the main character of the future. Not Elijah, not you, not me, nor any one person. And as we will see in our lesson today, there are other prophets of God. God sees the big picture. Elijah is not the only person God is using. God is accomplishing his plans in other places with other people that are simply beyond our understanding and knowledge. And I was reminded of that passage in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, for God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. Elijah needed to be reminded of that. I had to be reminded of, of that myself this past week and perhaps 
you need to be reminded of that as well. So just an observation as we transition from chapter 19 into 1 Kings chapter 20 today. Now, the first section here in our text, we're going to cover the whole chapter. It's this war with Benadad, king of Aram, which, as we'll see, is also uh, called Syria. And I've called this round one because there's some subsequent things that happen as well. And we see uh, in the first nine chapters that Benadad uh, demands subservience from Ahab uh, and Israel, Israel being a reference to the northern kingdom. So, and he, he comes with his army to besiege Samaria. Look at verse 1. Now Benadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army, and there were 32 kings with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and fought against it. Now Aram is a region occupied by the descendants of Aram. Uh, and they are known as the Arameans. Just to kind of plant this in your mind, go back to Genesis 6 and Genesis 10. So Noah had a son. One of his sons was Sham. And Sham... One of his sons was Aram. Okay, so this area that you see on the map, which is way north and east of Israel, is called Aram. And they, that's the, a land settled by the descendants of Aram. Now this area uh, was known in Old Testament times as Aram, but in but it later became known by its Greek term, Syria. We're familiar with Syria. In fact, if we pull up a modern-day map, what country occupies that area? It's Syria. That's modern-day Syria. We've been, or we're going to be talking about Ahab again. These are the kings that we have covered, or who we have covered so far, in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. There are more to come, so we'll continue to flesh this out. But today we're talking about King Ahab in the northern kingdom. Now, just for context, if we, if we pull in Aram and what's going on in, uh, in this area, there's a king, Benadad I. You may remember that, that Asa, King in Judah sent a large gift to him to get him to break his treaty with Israel and rescue them. We covered that. So that's the king we're talking about, this Benadad I. Most histor historians think that Benadad I reigned from about 900 to 860 B.C. And he was succeeded by a son or a grandson, Benadad II who ruled from about 860 to 841 B.C. Now, which of these two kings is being, ref is being referenced in our passage is, has been the subject of debate, but it seems likely that it was Benadad II. You can see that both of these overlap with the reign of, of King Ahab in Israel. So Benadad pulls together, it says, 32 smaller rulers within Syria. Uh, they collaborate and they come and besiege Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom. Later, it's, it's going to be called a region, the region of Samaria in Jesus' day. 
But right now there's, there's a town, Samaria, that's the capital. And Benadad has come and besieged he and his army this particular city. And then he, he issues some initial demands and which are accepted by Ahab. Look at verse 2. Then he, he sent messengers to the city, to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Benadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your, mo- your most beautiful wives and children are also mine. The king of Israel, that would be Ahab, replied, It is according to your word, my lord, O king. I am yours and all that I have. Now, Benadad is he's wanting to force Israel into to vassal status, to become a, a land and a people subservient to him, paying tribute to him, doing, you know, living in, in subjection. He issues this demand that he now owns their valuable possessions. And what, what is Ahab's response? Okay. I mean, it's hard to imagine that he would be willing to give these people as tribute. Ahab accepts the terms. He calls, look at what he calls Benadad. He calls him my lord. This is a king, king of the northern kingdom, calling him my lord, O king. And he says, I am yours and all that I have. Ahab and the northern kingdom must have been in a very desperate state. Remember, coming out of the drought and the famine. So perhaps he, he has no option but, in a sense, to surrender. Well, look at what happens next. So Benadad issues a more extensive demand, a set of demands, which are then rejected by Ahab. Verse 5. Then the messengers returned and said, Thus says Benadad, Surely I sent to you, saying, You shall give me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow, I will send my servants to you, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants, and whatever is desirable in your eyes, they will take in their hand and carry away. His, his first demands were, were met so easily that he's now gonna, he's going to another level. He's issuing demands that are more extensive, more intrusive, and also more imminent. He says, I'm coming tomorrow to, to take these things away. He wanted this unlimited access to whatever he desires, and he wants it now. Verse 7, Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Please observe and see how this man is looking for trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. All the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Benadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you sent for to your servant at the first I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. So Ahab gets counsel from uh, not only the, the elders within the northern kingdom, but also input from people. 
and they say, no, we, we, you shouldn't do this. He, so he, he responds, this thing I cannot do. Well, how's that going to go over? Benadad then makes threats of destruction and prepares for war. He, he actually, as we'll see, says he's going to level Samaria. And then Ahab gives him a, a reply to not boast prematurely. Verse 10. Benadad sent to him and said, May the gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria will suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. Benadad, he boasts that he's got this, this vast mighty army that not only can level Samaria, but they will be able to carry Samaria off in handfuls. Handfuls of dirt. They'll just level the whole the whole place. Verse 11, Then the king of Israel replied, Tell him, Let not him who girds, or girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. Ahab tells him, Don't boast when you put on the armor. Save your boasting for when you finish the fighting and win and take off the armor. In other words, don't count your chickens before they hatch. That's what he's saying. Uh, and these are fighting words. Now, you think about it, they may indicate some arrogance on the part of Ahab, given the fact that the kingdom is weak. I mean, he, he's already uh, acquiesced to the de those initial demands of Benadad, so you wonder how he can be bold now if, if he and his army and his people are in such a desperate state. Well, verse 12, Benadad calls his army to prepare for battle. When, when Benadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the temporary shelters, remember they've, they've besieged Samaria, he said to his servants, station yourselves. So they stationed themselves against the city. He's saying, battle stations, red alert, we're going to war. Well, we then see that God decides to intervene and give Israel the victory. And a prophet, verses 13 and 14, a prophet conveys to Ahab, king of Israel, that the Lord will make them victorious. Verse 13, now behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel. What's the prophet's name? He's nameless. It's not Elijah. It's another prophet. Prophet of God. He approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? He's talking about the army of Benadad. Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Ahab said, by whom? So he said, thus says the Lord, by the young men of the rulers of the provinces. And then he said, who shall begin the battle? And he said, you. In other words, who's going to lead? If you're going to give us the victory, who from our side is going to lead the charge? And who should initiate the battle? And he says, you should initiate it. And the Lord said, I will deliver them into your hand. These are words 
of assurance that God gave actually multiple times in the Old Testament to say he would be fighting for Israel and he would give them victory. I will deliver them into your hand. And the initial charge is going to be with, it says, young men of the rulers of the provinces. Now, that term, it could refer to young professional soldiers or it could also refer to young untrained soldiers. That same word is used of David when he fought Goliath. David was not a trained soldier, but he, he was young. You know, it, it's a term that could refer to people who are adolescents. And it says, he's going to do this and you shall know that I am the Lord. If you have the MacArthur Study Bible, you'll see the note where it says the victory would show Ahab that the Lord was in every respect the mighty God that he claimed to be. Though the people and king of Israel had dishonored God, and we've seen how that's happened already in our study, he would not utterly cast them off. It's really amazing that God would be doing this to a king and a people who were so rebellious against him. Well, Ahab attacks while Benadad was getting drunk. Verse 15. Then he mustered the young men of the rulers of the provinces. And there were 232. And after them he mustered all the people, even all the sons of Israel, 7,000. They went out at noon while Benadad was drinking himself drunk in the temporary shelters with the 32 kings who helped him. The young men of the rulers of the provinces went out first. So Ahab sends out this initial strike force, very small, 232 young men, with the idea that they would initially attack. Maybe they kind of come in under the radar because they're small. They are the initial strike force, and then the rest of the army would follow next. And then it says, And Benadad sent out, and, and they told him, saying, Men have come out from Samaria. So Benadad sends out this reconnaissance group to see what's going on, and they report back, Hey, there's some, some men of Samaria who are moving toward us. And then Benadad said, continuing in verse 18, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. What? I mean, Benadad is obviously incoherent. Why is he incoherent? Because he's drunk. That's why. He's, he makes no sense. Possibly the other leaders are as well. It's not clear, but... Um, verse 19, So they, they went out from the city, the young men of the rulers of the provinces, and the army which followed them. Well, what happens next is that Ahab's men slaughter the Arameans. Verse 20, they killed each his man and the Arameans fled and Israel pursued them. And Benadad, king of Aram, escaped on a horse with horsemen. The king of Israel went out and struck the horses and the chariots and killed the Arameans with a great slaughter. Now, God said back in verse 13, Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, 
and you shall know that I am the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. Everything God says happens exactly the way he says it will happen. Patterson and Ostell, two commentators, write, Surely such a divine deliverance against impossible odds should have convinced Ahab of God's continuing concern for him and the people of Israel. But unfortunately, this was not the case, as we will see. It should have convinced them of God's power, of God's sovereignty to see this amazing miracle happen. Well, next, both sides prepare to battle again the following year. Verse 22, then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, go, strengthen yourself and observe and see what you have to do. For at the turn of the year, the king of Aram will come up against you. So the Lord, through, through this nameless prophet, tells Ahab to go and strengthen because there's going to be another battle after or the next year. Late spring and, and the summer time frame, that was the most common time for kings to war against each other. When you think about it, that's the time when grass grows and you, you know, it can feed your cattle and provisions and horses. And it, it's just it was the common time to go to war. Well, the men of Aram tell Benadad to rebuild as well and fight again in the plain. In other words, in the flat area. Verse 23. Now the servants of the king of Aram said to him, Their gods are gods of the mountains. Therefore, they were stronger than we. In other words, because of the defeat at, at Samaria. But rather, let us fight against them in the plain. And surely we will be stronger then they do, th do this thing, remove the kings, each from his place, and put captains in their place, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will, f we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Benadad's people they convinced him that he the reason you lost in Samaria is because the gods of Israel, well, they're gods of the mountains. That's where they're really powerful. And that's why they were stronger. And they think that if they go and they fight Israel in this flat land, well, Israel's gods will have no no power to help them. They can't save them there. Now, has the northern kingdom been worshiping many gods? Yeah, they have. But the Arameans don't understand that the one true God um, is not constrained by topography. He is all-powerful. So he musters a replacement army. He, he rebuilds the men, the soldiers, chariots, and horses, and he reorganizes the leadership of his army as well. Which takes us to the war round two. And both sides prepare to fight again at Aphek, verse 26. Uh, this is where Benadad musters his new and his very large army. At the turn of the year, 
Benadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. Then the latter part of verse 27, and the Arameans filled the country. Aphek, it's a, it's a city that's much farther north than Samaria. You can, there's actually several towns that had had this name, and uh, it's believed that the one <coughs> mentioned here was likely three miles east of the Sea of Galilee. Actually, right on the, the border area between uh, Aram or Syria and Israel. So Ahab musters his strengthened but small army there in verse 27. The sons of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went to meet them. And the sons of Israel camped before them like two little flocks of goats. So uh, just an illustration of a, a major contrast. Goats never uh, are in large flocks. That, that they're just never, you know, in huge flocks. And so this, that's why he uses the illustration. Ahab's army was small. It was compact and, and greatly outnumbered by Benadad. Well, another prophet tells Ahab that God will give them into his, his hand, again, giving proof that he is the Lord, verse 28. Then a man of God, what's his name? another nameless prophet came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Arameans have said, the Lord, Yahweh, is a, and here they use God's name, because they have said Yahweh is a God of the mountains, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am Yahweh. This term man of God, that's a common Old Testament expression of a prophet, again, who, who spoke authoritatively for God. The Aramean specifically said Yahweh, the, the historical God of Israel, was limited in power to the mountains. He can't deliver the people in other areas, like, like a valley or a plain. This was a great insult to God. It's blasphemous. It's slanderous. And God chose to show his power and his judgment on them, even though Israel had an evil king and the people of Israel were evil and in rebellion uh, against God. So the battle begins, and as God promised, the enemy is delivered into the hands of Israel. In fact, on the first day, Israel, the Israelite army kills 100,000, verse 29. So they camped one over against the other seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined and the sons of Israel killed of the Arameans 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And then the remaining enemy soldiers, they flee to the city and there another 27,000 are crushed. Verse 30, but the rest fled to Aphek and the wall, that would be the, the wall surrounding the city that would be implied. The wall fell on 27,000 men who were left and Benadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. I mean, just an amazing story. 
of this small army that looks like a, a small group of uh, goats, they have slaughtered this massive army. And even when they fled to a city, there's this miraculous event that happens where the fall just crushes uh, these 27,000 other soldiers. Now, what did Benadad do? It says he, f- he fled, he came into the city, into an inner chamber, literally a room in a room. He is looking for a safe place to hide um, because they, he r- recognizes he's been defeated. He's not out leading the charge at this point. He's trying to save his own skin. Well, interesting, Benadad then pleads for mercy and Ahab lets him go. Verse 31, his servants, this is Benadad's servants, said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will save your life. Now, Anyone have an outfit made out of sackcloth? Probably not. Uh, It's a coarse, typically dark cloth, usually made of goat's hair. Not uncomfortable, and that's part of the intent. That's why it kind of stands alone. And it's worn during a time of mourning, uh, of distress, or, or repentance. It's uncomfortable. It's a place you don't want to be. That's that's the image that it portrays. I am in a, I'm in a place where I don't want to be. And then it says uh, they're going to put ropes on their heads, you would think, around the neck. And that would be a sign of what? Submissiveness, of surrender. That's how prisoners would typically be led away. The, you know, the line of prisoners with a, something around their neck so they can't escape, get out of line. And Benadad and the men with him put these things on as an expression of of their state of surrender and distress. Verse 32, So they girded sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Benadad says, Please let me live. And he, Ahab, said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men took this as an omen and quickly catching his word said like, oh yeah, your brother Benadad. Then he said, go bring him. Then Benadad came out to him. This is amazing. And he took him up into the chariot. Benadad, oh buddy, oh friend, oh pal. Come have a seat up here by me in the chariot. I mean, you don't do that to a, a king that you, that's hated your, your people and tried to kill you. Verse 34, Benadad said to him, he comes up into the chariot and he says to Ahab, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore. And you shall make streets for yourself in Damascus as my father made in Samaria. So he comes in right off the bat with this offer, this concession. And by the way, this verse where he, he says, the cities which my father took from your father, 
That's the, probably the biggest indicator that this has been a dad that's second. Um, but he, he makes this offer that I'm going to restore the cities which our people have taken from your people. And he's also going to give Ahab trading privileges in Damascus. Damascus is a large, you know, the, like the capital city of Aram. And he's saying, uh, you can have a booth, you know, more than a booth. This was like a marketplace. You can come and sell the goods, the things that come from your land. It's a, it's a very lucrative business. And I'll give you, you know, a reserved spot. So continuing on, verse 34, Ahab said, And I will let you go with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Ahab makes this covenant. He accepts the terms that Benadad offers. <clears throat> Benadad had spoken blasphemy against God, and he was to be judged for it. Instead of killing him, after God had delivered him into Ahab's hand, he instead makes a deal, and he releases him. He lets him go free. Ahab was more concerned about the benefits to him and to his people from the terms of the agreement rather than the Lord's honor and being obedient to him. He trusted in and these things more than trusting in the Lord. Well, next, the next section that uh, takes us to the end of the chapter is the pronouncement of judgment on Ahab. So we start out where a prophet prepares to meet Ahab in disguise. An interesting story. He, he comes and he commands another prophet to strike him. The guy refuses and is killed for disobedience to the Lord. Let's let this unfold. Verse 35. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets, yet another nameless prophet of God, said to another, in other words, another prophet, by the, by the word of the Lord, remember that phrase, please strike me. Now this certain man is, is of the sons of the prophets, that would be referring to a community of prophets of God who may very well have lived together and studied together. And he tells him by, based on direct revelation from the Lord, strike me, hit me, injure me. And this other prophet says, no. Uh, it's strange. Why is he saying this? We'll see it as the story unfolds. But continuing on, but the man refused to strike him. Verse 36. Then he said to him, because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have departed from me, a lion will kill you. And as soon as he departed from him, a lion found him and killed him. A uh, key point here is even prophets must obey the Lord or face the consequences. This was not just some haphazard, weird request. It was a clear directive from the Lord. God orchestrated this, uh, this drama that we're about to see and this illustration that the prophet is setting up as to why he, he asked uh, this other prophet to strike him. 
So the, the prophet is killed by a lion exactly as it was revealed would happen. Well, this prophet then finds another man who does strike him and wounding him as part of this disguise that he's setting up. Verse 37. Then he found another man, another prophet, and said, please strike me. Maybe this prophet saw what happened and he decided, uh, yeah, I'll do what you tell me. And the man struck him, wounding him. This is not some small slap. This is a major blow. Verse 38, so the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. He's essentially unrecognizable with the bandage and uh, the the injury. Well, the prophet pronounces judgment on Ahab, verses 39 to 43, but it begins where initially Ahab pronounces judgment on the disguised prophet. Let's look at that, verse 39. As the king passed by, he cried to the, so this is the disguised prophet who's injured and yeah, disguised. He cried to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If for any reason he is missing, then your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. The prophet is acting out a a scenario where he's saying he was charged to guard a man, perhaps a prisoner, and if this prisoner, this man went free, you're going to pay with your own life or else you're going to pay this impossible amount of money, at least for a typical soldier. A talent of silver would be about 75 pounds of silver, a massive amount of of money. Uh, You either pay with your life or this huge amount of money verse 40 while so the the injured disguised prophet is uh, now talking verse 40 while your servant was busy here and there he was gone and the king of Israel Ahab said to him said to the prophet the disguised prophet so shall your judgment be you yourself have decided it Ahab acknowledges that the sentence of death is just he said look you you agreed to do this part of the deal shows no mercy Um, and so Ahab says it's right that you forfeit your life because of that you you let the guy escape but this drama is meant to serve as a trap and uh, that's exactly what happened The prophet discloses himself and pronounces the death sentence on Ahab for his disobedience. Verse 41. Then he hastily, the prophet, took off the bandage, took the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him that he was one of the prophets. He said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction Therefore, your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the the prophet uncovered himself. He revealed his identity and he turns Ahab's own sentence of judgment around on him. 
God had devoted the idolatrous, the blasphemous Benadad to destruction, had given the army and Benadad into his hands, and Ahab let him go. He, uh, he had allowed the prisoner to escape and get away without judgment. And so, therefore, the prophet says, Ahab, your own life is going to be required of you. Verse 43, so the king of Israel, Ahab, went to his house, sullen and vexed, and came to Samaria, back to his capital city. Was he repentant? No, he was angry. He was resentful toward the Lord because of the judgment against him. Well, this is, uh, you know, we're, we're in historical narrative. There's just a lot of history and story, but there's lessons packed in here. And uh, here are some reflections as I think back. And by the way, in historical narrative, there's always lessons. You see things about the character of God on display, about his power, about the certainty of what he says. It always comes to happen. Lessons about the sinfulness of men and the natural inclination of the heart of men. Uh, Lessons of grace and mercy, forgiveness and all those things. Well, one, one reflection is God can do things through evil people to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And we see this throughout the Old Testament, through all of history. Even today we can see it. Ahab and Israel were evil. You remember when we first came to the introduction of Ahab, you know, and Ahab became king of Israel, and he did what? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was an evil king. Uh, idolatrous, his wife, he certainly did not pick a good wife, right? Jezebel. And uh, the people were evil and in rebellion. Yet God used them to bring judgment on Benadad and Aram. God was using this rebellious people, still directing them for other purposes that he was looking to accomplish. And God still does that today. Just don't think that just because evil people or evil things are happening in certain parts of the world, certain parts of the government or whatever, that God is not in control. God still uh, is accomplishing his purposes. Second, God also does good and gracious things to evil people to display his own character and power. I mean, that is so obvious in this lesson. Even though Ahab and Israel were evil, God did amazing things for them to show himself to them. Uh, he, it demonstrates that they are without excuse. You can just see this over and over in God's dealing with these rebellious kings, this rebe rebellious people. He displays himself and he says, I'm doing this so that you see who I am. This is still true today. You know, I was reminded of Romans one that says God's glory is on display all around us. Right. Uh, every man is without excuse. Evil people today still experience good things. They experience the grace of God, the good blessings of God. 
They can see God's power and glory all around them. And it's meant to point us to the reality that God loves us and that and that he is calling us to himself, that we must come to him. The third thing that uh, I noted was, and this is so clear uh, in our lesson, unless God opens the eyes and sinful heart of a person, they will not embrace the Lord regardless of what they see, hear, and experience in life. I mean, Ahab, he saw the whole deal on Mount Carmel. Right before his eyes, this amazing manifestation of the power of God. He's seen what's happened in uh, the Lord delivering him and delivering this huge army into his hands uh, multiple times. But yet, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He's clueless spiritually. And it's, it's just a reminder that unless God opens the spiritual eyes and heart of a person doesn't matter what you say, what they experience in life, how obvious it is to us uh, who can see the work of God. They're clueless. And so we we always have to pray for the Lord to do his work, that uh, work that we can never accomplish in the hearts of unsaved people. Fourth. God is holy and powerful and he ultimately judges those who blaspheme and sin against him. They are without excuse. That judgment may not be immediate and God is patient. And I mean, he's patient with Ahab. He's been patient with the northern kingdom. And over and over, he's doing things to say, look, look what I'm doing. Uh, Come to me. I'm willing to forgive. But God ultimately judges those who blaspheme and sin against him. And, and we certainly know in the ultimate sense, that is uh, people who are without Christ, who never come to the Lord in faith and repentance, will spend eternity uh, apart from his presence. And finally, what God declares is true. God always speaks the truth. And what God says will happen, it always happens. Unless he associates a condition around it that that might change the course. uh, That is the testimony of God throughout biblical history. We just see it over and over. God declares things exactly uh, a certain way and that's exactly how it unfolds. It reminds us that we need to trust the Lord's word, what he says. Every promise, every truth that he gives us in the New Testament uh, to reveal about our own heart and the truth of Christ and the gospel and living for Christ and how we are to serve and do things and what is to come, all the the blessings and promises that are, are ours, it's true. And it will happen exactly as the Lord said it will happen. Well, I hope you're encouraged by that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that reveals so much about you and so much about us. Help us to learn from the display of yourself in the pages of Scripture. May we continue to grow in faith 
and assurance and in, in, in trusting you and being obedient to you, being people who are pleasing in your sight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.